who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? Who's the man who would risk his neck for his brother man? Who's the cat who won't cop out when there's danger all about? Who else could it be but Shaft? And he's here to kick down the door of American noir that's been jammed shut for quite a while now. Emerging from a whirlwind decade of sun-dappled beach bunnies and eye-popping mod fashion, it was fair to say that noir had lost sight of the shadows. New American cinema arrived in a maelstrom of gunfire aimed at Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, and suddenly the danger was real again. The years following Bonnie and Clyde saw more and more unlikely heroes stepping out of the margins. For John Shaft, exploitation's most famous private eye, it goes well beyond that. Navigating the grime and sleaze of 1970s New York, clad in his singular leather coat, backed by that iconic Isaac Hayes score, he steps out of the margins and straight into myth. So begins a new era for film noir. It had not been a strictly American phenomenon for decades, just ask Akira Kurosawa. The, the dawn of the 70s, there's a real feeling of it being wrenched from its studio comfort zone, pulled back into the darkness that had been baked into the genre since the start. Black exploitation proves a brutally fitting lens to reframe noir, centering the narrative on a community that had been rendered invisible throughout classic Hollywood. No surprise what we find here. Not only is the system just as rotten as ever, but seen through this new vantage, it's worse than we were led to believe. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh... Your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, and my supposed <laughs> friend is... Tristan Johnson. And tonight we are digging it with Richard Rountree and Robert Hooks in a black exploitation doubleheader. Aside from brief detours to France and Japan, our private detectives have been cut from the same white male cloth, so it's about damn time we got some new voices in the room. Hard not to find this a refreshing break after everything we've been taking in. Exactly. And we're going to start with the inevitable, the leather-coated titan of the genre, which kicks off with 1971's Chef. Can't say he's gonna be here, he should be here. Open it up. Shaft's his name. Shaft's his game. Can't say he's gonna be here. And he ain't. It ain't right. Released in 1971, directed by Gordon Parks, and starring Richard Roundtree with supporting turns from Moses Gunn and Christopher St. John, we are looking into Shaft. Uh, so our, our plot 
uh, private detective John Shaft. He's hired by Harlem Kingpin Bumpy Jonas to track down his missing daughter. This assignment first leads him back to an old friend, Ben Buford, and then back to Bumpy as we get the predictable reveal that the Kingpin knew a little more about the kidnapping of his daughter than he let on. Uh, Shaft and Buford are forced to team up, work for um, work for Bumpy, and go up against uh, go up against the Italian mafia. Uh, so we actually get uh, a little bit of of race tension uh, played out for the the first real time in uh, in all of the movies that we've seen. Certainly the most um, in your face commentary on that. Your personal experience watching Shaft, watching black exploitation, have you? Uh, have you seen much black exploitation before? Uh, no, maybe I'm trying to think. I, I think this is my I think this is my first time getting into black exploitation. Obviously, Shaft is a cultural icon, so looms large in in the mind. But I had not seen it before. Uh, you know, also just to say at the top here, you know, we're two pretty white guys, and we're we're going to do our best in this conversation. But uh, I don't know, just to put that disclaimer up at the top, and I think we're both going to try to come at this really centering it. I mean, obviously, commentary of race is baked into the premise of both of these movies, but I feel like we're really going to dig into the noir of it all and really come at it that way because there's not a lot that we can say authoritatively about the black experience in America. No, you're you're spot on there, and I'm certainly not well versed in in the black black exploitation genre either. I have seen Shaft before. I've seen Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and that's about it. Uh, so it's clearly a, a pretty big cinematic blind spot for me too. Um, and it's been it's been nice to get to dive into two and approach it from the noir lens, but. Uh, but there's definitely limits, uh, as you said, to to the experience that we're bringing in here uh, as as we dig into this discussion. Yeah, but no, I am excited. Also, it's I mean, it was I'm glad to have finally seen these movies, and it's uh, definitely opened the door for me to to finally dig in on, on something that I had overlooked uh, unjustly for for too long in my own film going experience. And more so, uh, just right off, off the top, um, this is, first of all, Shaft is based on a 1970 novel, um, which went on to start a series. And, and Shaft itself um, is the, the first in a series that now has has five films to it, uh, although uh, two of them would not come until, until much later, uh, when Samuel L. Jackson was inserted into the, um, the timeline as, as John Shaft's son. Uh, so, uh, so the seventies saw three shaft films all kind of back to back to back before we had a, a gap until the new millennium. Uh, and then of I, course there was the recent 2020, yes. 2021. I think it was, I think it was 19, uh, 19. All time Everything. is compressed uh, into yeah. a blur. Clearly. Uh, so, so five shaft films to all of which Richard Roundtree has appeared in as, as shaft. Um, and, and it and it speaks to what an icon that he's been, and uh, and and even if you haven't seen Shaft, you're aware of his presence on the cultural landscape. And I would say more so than than any of the the detectives that we've seen so far, minus minus Bogart um, in in the Marlowe and Sam Spade capacities, and 
certainly I put them at, at least um, in cultural awareness uh, on, on the level, if not above, of, of um, Nick and Nora Charles. He's like yeah. Chaff is someone that that is just uh, we're aware of him, even if we haven't seen this movie. So uh, it helps have a great theme him. song. It really does. Um, we have not. We we sort of got we got some theme songs back in. Um, James Garner got a theme song sort uh, for uh, of, of sorts to, uh, to kind of yeah. lead in. Um, it's it didn't stick quite. Right, but <laughs> quite I mean, like, it, it also helps. This you have the theme song written by Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes, yes. Clearly, the the music is indelible. Um, you can't separate it. It's also the fashion sense. Um, he's a larger than life presence, and. And you really get the the sense that everyone involved in this production knew knew what they were dealing with, knew they had they had to have Shaft make an impact, mm-hmm. um, and and they all really deliver on that front. Um, this is this is a character that is billed as hotter than Bond, cooler than Bullet. He lives uh, up to it. He does. He really does. Although the interesting thing I was reading about it, the you know the the so it's a a white novelist wrote the book. He wrote it about a black character, but about Shaft as a black character. And then when they were going to adapt it into a movie, they were going to change it into a white guy. Oh, wow. Right. Which oh. would be a very Wild. different movie. But fortunately, I... they they stuck to the original version and, and cast uh, Richard Roundtree. And like... He, he's tremendous. And... Oh. That would have just faded into the the landscape of of seventies crime thrillers. I feel mm-hmm. like it, it the, this this needed Roundtree and uh, and he's so so good here with that billing with that hotter than Bond, cooler than than Bullet. I think I think that sets up one one thing that we're going to start seeing a lot in the neo-noir films that we are going to be examining. Why we have a clear signifier that we've left noir behind uh from from this point forward uh films films that we're seeing are not just reckoning with a single genre they're not just looking back at noir they're looking back at an increasingly uh a range of of influences uh so all of a sudden um yes there's there's certainly classic detective films on the on the mind here but um but you know james bond is a larger than life kind of figure that looms in in pop culture especially at this time and bullet and steve mcqueen and you know you, your your rising action hero and um and so that's on that's on the mind of of shaft clearly but i, I you're going to see that in different ways uh, across a range of genres with all, most of the noirs that we're going to be examining from this point forward they're not just drawing their influence from classic film noir they're pulling influences from all over the cinematic landscape yeah i mean bonds come up a few times now and as we've talked about it's it's that pulp undercurrent feeding back and forth between the crime and the spy novel and then obviously also later there are film adaptations and so you know the same ease with women that we saw in the big sleep then also ends up with bond ends up with mickey mike mike hammer and now ends up here with shaft and you know i think it's all part of the same like 
masculine, some would say misogynist power fantasy that is uh, being played out of just like any woman immediately as soon as they see you is is gonna drop everything they're doing and and, and try to get with you. But um, you know, I think there's an interesting extra context here that that it's not just power fantasy but it you know it's a fantasy centered on a black character and so it's like opening the door for an audience to see representation of themselves in escapist fare that had not previously been able to and uh you know i think that that is that that does give it something extra there yeah ab- absolutely the sex appeal is is so baked in here and and painting him painting shaft as uh, it's part of the theme song it's um it's it, part of many scenes in the movie there's that um that deliriously 70s lovemaking scene um with where we're where we're fading colors and shapes as as uh, as her hands are moving across his back and uh and and it's it's sensuous in a in a way that that movies haven't really uh, the movies we've been looking at haven't been before couldn't have been before. Well, I mean, loving was within the previous ten years. Like him being with a white woman would have been illegal in some states, right? Not that long prior to the filming of this movie. There's something that uh, the whole film has a has this um, has this vibe of 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 more in- inclusivity that we've just not been seeing. There's, there's a gay character in here who's not painted as a, as a strictly a, a stereotype, but just shows up in the bar and, and isn't, isn't coded as villainous, isn't, um, you know, it's a very, very minor part, but it's nice to see, it's just nice to see a character depicted with a little bit of empathy and not treated just as a joke. Right. Well, I think it's, you know, digging into an actual urban New York setting, right? And saying, this is, these are the people you're going to meet. Because it's also, you know, looking back to Chandler's novels, there are plenty of gay characters. They're just often also the villains, but the cellular closet and, and all that, in, in terms of how it then gets translated to film and, and a bunch of like, he was my roommate and that kind of stuff. But it is still, like you said, trapped within the mindset of like, quote unquote, sexual deviancy. And so either textual or subtextual homosexuality then also became baked into who the villains are. Whereas like I said here, it's just sort of allowing it to just be part of the environment. Yeah. And and the result is it feel it feels cosmopolitan. It feels progressive. It feels to me like a movie that can be for anyone. This is not this does not read to me like a movie for just for black audiences. It's it's so wonderful that there's a that there's a black hero to to root for, but uh and you know, many 50 years distance from it, but I like I would I would watch this and not and not like think about the fact that there are relatively few white characters in here. That's uh, that it's something that it just plays. It plays pretty timelessly, and I think it holds up quite well. I no, I had a great time watching it, and I, and again, I, I can't give enough credit to like Richard Roundtree. Like his movie star charisma is doing a lot of great work in this. I think the in terms of the actual plot and i mean honestly it actually kind of reminds me of the big sleep and what i love about the big sleep which is that 
the plot kind of doesn't matter. It's there to close line, uh, to provide a close line for a vibe to hang on. And we've just traded in 1940s LA and that sort of kind of breezy, warm, sun-baked space and rainy nights for New York and steam and New York in the 70s and, you know, grit and pre-Giuliani and all that kind of stuff. And so I, it, to me, it, it functions in a very similar way. And in both cases also did the right thing and cast a phenomenal, charismatic leading man to, to carry both movies across the finish line. And so we've got Roundtree, we've got the, the Isaac Hayes score, and I would, I would say that the third most important component here is, is New York and, and the city, which it, itself is just such, such a vibe, such a setting. Um, well, probably the, the 70s in New York, more so than maybe any other city in any other decade ever, is, is just such a, a landscape. And, and, and Scorsese gets a, all sorts of rightly deserved credit for, for that. But this is right in that same... Uh, we're we're at the same year, same year as French Connection, right? And, I was gonna say French Connection, I was gonna say Friedkin too, and French Connection, yeah. and like that to me feels like it's filmed. I mean, I'm not very familiar with New York geography, but it feels like it could have been filmed a few blocks away from somewhere Shafts, you know, maybe like the next borough over. I don't know. I'm gonna stop pretending like I know where the hell anything is in New York, but it it feels very much of a piece, and um, and, and in general, I think the the, I, I'm sure there's changes in camera technology too that allowed for even greater on-location filming that is sort of feeds into that New York texture that you see in film in, in this particular moment in time. But I mean, also like Clute, you know, like that whole era is just anytime they go to New York, it is New York in the seventies. Yeah, um, and and we've spent the better part of this season, and will continue to spend a lot of it in Los Angeles, um, which which is kind of the the end all be all noir setting. But what a great case this this movie makes for for being lost in that in in that metropolis. Um, this is not the the spread out uh, endless roads and uh, and. and in wide spaces that the Inland Empire offers, this um, this feels claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. It feels uh, it feels multinational. It feels that there's there's just always uh, there's there's such a diverse array uh, of backdrop to to New York that is in your face and it's busy and it's bustling. Uh, it's overwhelming. It's absolutely sensory overload and and it's such a great noir setting. There was a moment early, like very at the start, when he's just kind of walking down the street and we've got this following him and credits going and, and all that. And there's one shot where he walks through some steam coming out of a subway grate. And even though we're shooting in daylight, the steam and the sun creates a silhouette effect that is classic noir. I mean, it is, but whereas previously you have to do that on a studio back lot and shoot day for night and like control your, you know, you'd have to really work to create that effect in, in a controlled setting here. They're just able to find it in on the city street. And, but it still so clearly connects it right back to the classic noirs of the forties and fifties. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think a a lot of the, a, a lot of the other 
seventies era films that we we just referenced are are a bit more uh, a bit more crime versus just versus noir. There's uh, I, it's it's hard to find it's hard to find that line where Sc- I wouldn't I wouldn't put Scorsese put Mean Streets or or Taxi Driver necessarily in that noir camp, but they they could be. I, I hear someone make a case for it, but here I think it. I think it finds those moments so well. And and it's partly because we are positioning all of those images against a larger-than-life mythic detective figure. And, you know, I know you kind of link this to Neonor and the commentary on, you know, the rise of uh, the the Hollywood Brats and, like, you know, Scorsese, the new, 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 new cinema and all that. But the... Uh, the new hollywood and all that but this to me still feels like our last episode with uh hudson and marlowe not harper and marlowe where yes it is starting to comment on and invoke the 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 larger cinematic traditions that it's it's kind of engaged with but it's not I don't know. I wouldn't put this as a neo-noir personally. I think that this is still, it's in that transition period, but I would actually put this more on the noir side. Like it feels at the end of the day, pretty straightforward about what it's doing. You know what I mean? Like it's, it feels closer to me to like my camera than it does to the long goodbye. I, I, I think that makes sense on a, uh, on on a level of uh, of plotting, for sure. There's um, as far as the as far as the story beats, how it plays out. Um, it's not going anywhere. Surprising. It's not offering any anything particularly new in terms of of, of commentary when it comes to the the nuts and bolts of the story itself. I think to me, it's more of the the sea change in terms of who's getting to make movies now and sure. um and and that there are new voices in the mix and that that's something that that it's hard to imagine happening uh, a decade before even i think that's a totally valid reading to me the the thing that i come back to is that not just the plot but the overall i don't know it it feels like it is primarily interested in telling a pulpy story whereas i feel like once you get into the neo-noir and retro-noir phase it gets more about like telling a story and also acknowledging that kind like you know what i mean like there's there's more of that packaging to the story that goes into the neo-noir whereas this this just kind of plays it straight to me like this and trouble man both uh, you know they're not obviously like we're past noir especially if the, cl- the classical sense of noir is a specific time and place. We're we're past that point, but I don't know. It, it's it's interesting, right? Because it, it's not like there's not hard and fast definitions or specific conventions, you know. But but it's it's hard to put noir noir more than like any anything else. It's so hard to put it into a box, and that's mm-hmm. uh, that's always the debate, right? But but of course you've got. I mean the other the the other subgenre thriving right at the same time across the Atlantic is is giallo that 
that very much has has a lot of elements from classic noir, but it's got its own. It, it, I wouldn't call it neo noir in the slightest, but it still takes many of those those noir tropes and and incorporates them. For sure, no, that's yeah, it's. Uh... It's an imprecise, imprecise thing that we're doing, but I think that's part of why we're having these conversations is to really try and, and dig into the question that has eluded film critics for 70 years now. 80 and, years. When was the first? And, 46? Yeah, I think that's right. 46. It's the first essay. So coming up on 80 years of, of film noir and still nobody's quite sure what it is. And and when it comes down to it, this is a black exploitation film. This and also Trouble true. Man belong in the same box together. Uh, and they both are very much have have noir on their minds, uh, but but they've got they've got other other story beats too, and they're something unto themselves. No, no absolutely. I think black exploitation, like noir, is not just a genre, but what was the, the original was the, the, the original franchise? already called it a, a film series, right? Not a not a genre, and it defined it as like. A, a particular set of movies happening in a particular culture at a particular period of time and just like French New Wave just like you know any of these these things it's not just about content it's not just about form it's also about context and so we have seen you know plenty of movies that have hearkened back to black exploitation in recent years I'm thinking of uh, Michael J. White's, uh, what was the name of his movie? Black Dynamite. Um, right. Which, you know, is a very loving homage to black exploitation, but, and obviously also like, as I said at the top, not an expert, but I would expect that there's an argument to be made that it is not black exploitation in and of itself, in the same way that a movie made after 1958 is not noir, because part of what noir is, is the specific cultural context that it was engaged in. You know, even with Giallo, I mean, there's still the occasional Giallo film that gets made. But like, is it Giallo? Like, is that still a genre, or is that again a particular time and place? I, I, it's something where I would hear someone make a case for it for for it being able to continue. I'd, I'd be curious if someone um, if someone would would make that argument. But for me, yeah, so much of so much of genre, as long as you're as long as you're getting specific with it, is. Um, is really it, it comes out of an era. It comes out of a, a location. It comes out of a similar mindset of a you know usually small handful of directors who are operating on a roughly similar wavelength. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was just listening to uh, Secret Handshake, which is a film podcast from some Austin film film people, and they did an episode talking about. New French Extremity, and it was very reminiscent to me of conversations that, that we've had in critical analysis of noir that they were having about New French Extremity, and that it's like a specific period where a bunch of directors who kind of knew each other kind of didn't at fairly say that they weren't in conversation and weren't specifically trying to comment on each other, but were making movies that were reacting to the same political and cultural environment and were arriving at a similar process for expressing the themes that they were trying to get at. And so it creates this film series, the new French extremity that, you know, you could make a movie like an extreme horror film now, but 
would it still be new French extremity if like that particular moment now, you know, that's all they're can of worms because they're responding to the fascist elements of French pol- politics, which is apparently always simmering and ready to bubble up. See Marie Le Pen in the recent uh, elections. Right. So, you know, I also imagine arguing you made that new French extremity is perfectly primed to make a comeback and the, 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 cultural environment is is ripe for it i i think that that where where you get the line between uh these you know not we're not talking about we're not talking about overarching genres but we're talking about fairly specific genre movements and Mm -hmm. and and so the difference is you might have one director who 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 has a very very distinct point of view and is operating on their own wavelength and and that could be uh, that could be an an auteur uh, just doing their thing, or that that director could all of a sudden start um, start influencing more around them. And I mean, can you imagine if can you imagine if uh, if there were many Wes Anderson imitators all all together that were make that that were making that more than just his thing? But I, I don't know that I don't know I'd be able to handle that. <laughs> but but that that's how you get a, a subgenre uh, where where as opposed to one director just um just crafting their own really unique vision agreed no i think it was uh i think strader was the one who said noir is inherently anti-autourist because it's looking to unite across a variety of directors and unite not just not just content but form and so it therefore speaks to what is similar between directors rather than what is unique. Um, and and yeah, to, we're, br- to, to bring this, to bring this say, back we're pretty though, far afield. To, to bring this back to what, to black exploitation and to shaft um, that this does feel like we are, we're dipping into uh, the, the larger movement that's ahead where noir now belongs to the subgenres. It belongs to the, the popular consciousness. It's, it's something that is going to be spun off in dozens of directions as we move forward through time. And, and yes, we just uh, a few weeks ago saw Seijun Suzuki do, do that with some Yakuza uh, with a Yakuza film and how that's that's something that's clearly already been kind of spun into different uh, different directions overseas. Uh, Godard's his own thing, so I, I I can't really put him into that same camp. But um, but here we've got black exploitation, and it's only going to keep going with that. We're going to see different spins on what it means to be noir um, as we move forward in this series, um, and and uh, and this feels like. Um, just having having two films arriving um, within a year of each other that both are both are taking our classic private investigator and and looking at him through new voices through a new lens. Um, this is exciting to me. This is where we're we're really jumping off and we're about to get some uh, some really great content in the the back half of our season thanks to these the these different voices from around the world that are now interpreting. Noir on their own terms. Agreed. No, it's, it's uh, we've got an exciting run of films ahead of us, starting here with with Shaft and Trouble Man. Anything else on Shaft you want to dig into? Um, yeah, there's one one thing that I I particularly liked in Shaft, uh, and 
and it ties into it ties into Ben Buford, his his old friend, and then becomes an ally here. This is one of the first noir films that we've seen where it, it's not just the detective going it alone, um, and and we at, Shaft ends with this kind of glorious mayhem in a it, and and we we get. Ben Buford and his men teaming up with Shaft. Shaft has an actual ally, um, and and they go in to to take down uh, take down the bad guys. And to as, as they go in, there's there's a uh, bright red building. It's just such a stark environment. We've got a fire hose spraying water everywhere, which is just creating some wonderful chaos in the proceedings. But but more than that, we've got a team that seems to just be enjoying being together. And Shaft is still the star of the show, no doubt about that. But he's not one man against the world like we've seen with so many of our detectives to date. No, that's really true. And I think both of these films are very specific about situating their protagonist within a community and establishing his relationship to that community. And I think there's some interesting points to take from that that we'll probably get to at the at the wrap-up. But uh, no, I agree that it's it's it is such an interesting distinction that he is working with a whole team, like a, it's a, a whole assault team that that yes. breaks in from a variety of angles. I mean, he throws a Molotov cocktail through a window and then swings in. You know, it's it's that's you're not going to see Humphrey Bogart do that. No, no. Um, well, I think I think let's jump from there right into our second film of the night. Shaft getting followed up with. Trouble Man. Trouble is here. He's street smart and steel hard. He's a healer, a fixer. My name's T, baby. Wears $600 suits, drives a $10,000 car, and he carries two guns. One to stop trouble and one to make trouble. He was born in the ghetto and raised in the streets. He's been a man since he was a kid. And Trouble is this man's name. Released in 1972, Trouble Man was directed by Ivan Dixon. Stars Robert Hooks as Mr. T, with supporting turns from Paul Winfield, Ralph Waite, and William Smithers. Uh, Julius Harris, who played Mr. Big, would go on the following year uh, to feature as a hook henchman in another black exploitation-inspired studio flick featuring uh, Mr. Big. Um, that would be Roger Moore's first outing as Bond, Live and Let Die. Um, and uh, and another supporting turn, Bill Henderson, who plays T's manager at the pool hall, Jimmy, uh, to me, will always be immortalized for the uh, the bit part in the movie that I've seen more than any other, uh, which would be Clue. He plays the ill-fated police officer. Uh so we've got uh, we've got quite a cast together. Um, Mr. T, uh, let's we'll just call him T uh, for for simplicity's sake, is approached by Chalky and Pete, two men who are running a string of craps games uh, that cover a range of clientele, black and white. Their games have been knocked off by uh, by some armed men, and they want T to get to the bottom of it. He drives a hard negotiation, but agrees, uh, only to find that they have set him up as the fall guy in a far grander scheme to take out. A rival crime boss, Big. Just as T is piecing this all together, he gets framed for Big's death, forcing him to stay one step ahead of the police as he heads off for a epic confrontation with Chalky and Pete. Uh, something you just said reminded me that uh, we didn't get into with the with Shaft, but 
you know, Shaft, he very specifically says my rate is $50 a day plus expenses. Like it is uh, talking about, you know, that through line of the detective. He's, he also is a per day plus, plus expenses. But then here, it's so interesting that he T is not like that at all. No, T is. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting a percentage, and it's going to be this much, and it's a lot more. You know, good for him for knowing his value, you know, knowing the the value of his work. Uh, T T um, is a is a far since we're already already T is a far fancier man. He wears he wears well cut '70s style suits. Uh, he drives expensive cars. And he definitely knows what he's worth, both in that that early car ride scene with Chalky and Pete, where he where he ex- engages in quite the negotiation to uh, to arrive at uh, at ten thousand five hundred dollars, which he sticks to in the end when when he comes when he comes to collect when he's when he's hitting Chalky up just before things really go south. Uh, he he only wants he doesn't want more. He doesn't want to take thirty thousand or whatever it is. Um, Chalky tries to push off to him he he just wants his ten thousand five hundred dollars right. well again the, you know the the detective is the knight errant the 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 ronin the masterless samurai you know like this this archetype it is repeated throughout different cultures manifests here as this lone figure setting out to right some of the wrongs in the world and and because he has a foot in both the 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 lawful and lawless world he is able to navigate both and and bring unity back to the world and so yeah of course he's like that's i'm a man of my word i said ten thousand five hundred, and that's what's going to be let's see did, I'm, I'm assuming um i did not have any personal experience with the trouble man uh having and being a fairly new to black exploitation in general um it had not been on my radar uh i'm so I didn't bring any prior experience in. No, this was new to me too. You know, something that it, obviously this actually came before it, but I, something that this echoed for me is in American Gigolo when he's going around and like figuring out his outfits and very carefully putting together his Giorgio Armani suits and um, putting it out on the bed and going through his, cl- you know, I, there's, I think there's an echo of the same conspicuous consumption wealth aspiration to the way that T like has his apartment and his clothes and his car that that is also such such a big part of not just American Gigolo but you know the entirety of 80s filmography and and uh how much wealth its conspicuous wealth becomes a part of the film going experience yeah i think that's a good call out i love that that T's office um, he has swapped the the PI office for a pool hall, and and that's his domain. And uh, and and you know, it's it feels much more a, a symbol of of wealth um, in this particular context, at least. Um, it feels it feels very appropriate for him, um, and and as a kind of base of operations, I I I, I like that touch. I liked it a lot, except for the very first time we go there, where we spend three minutes playing a game of pool that has no bearing on the movie <laughs> i like that was i mean like it, it introduced a lot of you know a lot of characters kind of came in during that game and set up some plot lines and all that stuff but i was like this is I'm just watching this guy play pool for the hell of it for some money uh i guess first a little uh, some context for the the movie um one the writer 
um, John D.F. Black also co-wrote Shaft. Uh, so, so some through line here between the two of them. Um, we also have a, a classic musician handling the score. Uh, we've swapped out Isaac Hayes, but this is the one and only score that Marvin Gaye ever wrote. And it's a great uh, one, unsurprisingly. And it's, and it's great. I noted this book, this, uh, this movie apparently factored into a, a book from the late seventies, uh, uh, about the 50 worst films of all time, which when I saw that, I was absolutely confused because I rather liked this movie. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite on the iconic level that Shaft is, but it's really good. And, um, and, and I have absolutely no idea how, how anyone engaging in, in film seriously could possibly have lumped this onto any worst of list. Although that same list also included Ivan the Terrible and Last Year at Marion Bad and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. So I, uh, I would say this is in good company. I mean, if nothing else, there are so many more films that are not as well put together on a technical level as to disallow this from any such list. But also, yeah, it's just a really good... You know, I think Shaft has some, like, higher highs and definitely some more iconic moments. But in terms of, like, this is just, like, a really solid, well-done pot boiler. Like, it's just... He gets the thing. There's some betrayals and double crosses, and a lot of guys get shot. Yeah, it delivers what you want it to. The um, the climax or the two climaxes, I guess, as he goes after Chalky and then as he goes after Pete, um, are both are filled with everything you want to to wrap up a movie. Um, and it's just kind of pure exhilaration from that in that last third. Uh, and there's a few moments throughout the I think some of the story beats, like you mentioned, the initial pool game, uh, him um, him slipping into the the evidence locker feels. Um, a bit like pushing a bit beyond belief, but for the most part, this is this is a really taut thriller, and oh, it moves. Uh, it, it moves so moves well. well. Yeah, you know what it also reminded me of was Point Blank. You know, it's also uh, about a guy who's owed yeah. some money, who was betrayed by a criminal organization, and then he goes around and very methodically takes to the part of that organization and does so. You know, fairly like creative and and thinking outside the box. Uh, also just sort of stylistically, the suits, the, there's, I don't know actually where this, I guess it must be from the final shootout, but the poster image for this movie oh, yeah, the, is him standing the, the in front mirror. of a bunch of mirrors that are being shot at, which is just like when he, in point blank, when he goes to his ex's, uh, apartment or house or whatever, and there's a shootout there in front of the mirrors, uh, so it just it, it just kind of had those echoes for me of of that, and and also, you know, just like here, you know, Lee Marvin has he's owed a certain amount of money, and that's the money that he wants back, and people start offering him extra money. He's like, no, no, I want the money that I'm owed, and I want the people who owe it to me to pay, and that's it. Yeah, that's a that's such a good a good comparison to draw, and um, and and. Robert Hooks is great. Um, I, I mean, we, we just spent a while talking about um, about Richard Roundtree and Shaft and how how much he brings it, but uh, but but Hooks is a, a brings cool confidence 
to this. He brings sex appeal. He's got a lot of those same qualities that um, that Shaft has, and I love I I love that right right from the opening scene here. He uh, he's as he as he bids farewell to to his girl in the in the pool um, and implies he, he has no one he'll be seeing her again. Um, he he can have any woman he wants. Uh, and he can do it at his own pace. Although I think the key difference between the two, and I think also sort of speaks to the ethos of the two movies, is T is not interested in like charming anybody or winning anybody over or making friends. Like he is a man on a mission, and uh, there's almost Terminator esque focus and and level of just resolve to his actions, where he's just is going to do the thing and you 100% believe that he's going to do the thing. Whereas Shaft is like a charming guy and part of his thing is winning people over and and it's such an interesting comparison and and, and I think that also like I said speaks to the, the larger movie is where Shaft feels a little bit more like a hangout movie whereas Trouble Man is a it's a man on a mission. It's a man on a mission there's going to be some gunshots like some gunfire. Like Shaft gets into like two shootouts and T gets into like ten. Well, it's it's personal here, and, and they, it's it's made personal here very very early on, um, and, uh, and 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 so that squares up really well with. I mean, he's yeah, T is a a man trying to get his money, and and justifiably pissed that he's been framed uh, multiple times for murder. Yeah, I mean, I would I would also be quite annoyed i don't know that <laughs> i take vengeance in my hands uh quite like this but also that's why i'm not a private detective you know yeah so uh gosh um what before we before we get into um squaring the two films off more together is there anything that um other, otherwise that really stands out to you from here you know i guess we don't really get the plot too much but it's also because it's not it's sort of the same way it doesn't matter i mean it's the same with all these movies right the plot kind of doesn't matter the point is to allow them to string together whatever it is right whether it's meeting interesting characters or hanging out with cool people or getting into a bunch of gunfights like that's that's ultimately the purpose of any of these these plots and i think on that level again it, it succeeds quite well and you know yeah he's just like it's We're just not fun watching take these people are, apart. These, the both of these movies are are fairly easy to to summarize. They're, we're not we're not in big sleep territory here, where where keeping track of each each plot be each uh, characters that appear in one scene and never show up again. This, these are both pretty easy to to decipher movies with uh, uh, with with enjoyable, easy to follow plots. But you know, I will say. Trouble Man did surprise me. You know, like Shaft is very straightforward to the point of like, it kind of tells you what's happening from the get-go. The bad guys are who you think the bad guys are and it resolves itself. Trouble Man, I could see, obviously they very clearly tell you that the betrayal is coming because it's it's there from like the third or fourth scene. But I did not expect Big to get killed and T to get set up for that. And right. like the the back half kept like kept me on my toes a little bit too, which I really appreciated that it that it was well crafted in that regard that it, it wasn't you know it was it all made sense and it all hung together and built off what came before, but also it did not just sort of 
idle along and, and coast on on what it, what else I had going for it. I also uh, was very concerned that Jimmy was going to die. Like when they they cut away after he gets taken, I was like, yep. oh god, don't kill Jimmy. He's like my favorite. Jimmy, I like him too much. Jimmy, Jimmy didn't deserve anything. No, for sure. There's um I don't know there there's that bringing it back to that that sense of community. It's it's really nice to see our our detectives have actual friends. Most of the time, the detectives' allies are shaky at best, where you're you just don't know if you can trust them, and um, and, and in Jimmy and in, in, in Ben uh, from Shaft, it's it's just nice to be able to have someone you you actually come to rely on. Uh, yeah, I mean, so we've already been kind of talking about both of these in in relationship to each other. I mean, Trouble Man was made as a quick response to Shaft in the same way that Friday the 13th was sort of a quick response to Halloween and many, many times before and since Hollywood has been like, oh, that was very successful. How quickly can make the same, but slightly different. But, you know, fortunately, just like with Halloween Friday the 13th, we we end up with two great movies existing with it, helping to define the same genre, but doing very different things within it. Start talking about like a little bit more what what they say together about where noir is and how it's interact intersecting with black exploitation and, and and the specifics of, of this these movies. Approaching this from stance of of black exploitation, I um, I am as established not well versed in in this array of movies. However, uh, the 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 sexual freedom that feels like it's uh, that's just kind of coming through here in spades is something that we haven't really seen before. Um, it definitely feels like a, a unifying element of both films, and and uh, I, uh, from what I from what I gather, there's certainly more of that in across the black exploitation genre. That is something that feels uh, like a hallmark here, and it feels like a really uh, uh, it feels like a, a necessary um, or the uh, perhaps the obvious next step for noir as it's embracing um, what else it can be. Uh, those those tensions that were always left to well placed innuendo uh, are now being being brought to the forefront, and it's no longer implied. It's there, right on screen for everyone to see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it is both a artistic and cultural statement, but it is also an economic one, right? I mean, we're talking about movies that are primed for the drive-in and. In the same, I mean, it, I think it's the same pressures that brought a lot of nudity to horror movies. Just, I mean, at the same time, and a few years later too, it's 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 a way to get people in seats, right? Like, I mean, it, it but it works within the genre, right? It, that's the thing is that it right it it melds well with it. But it's not just. I don't think it's just directors being like and writers being like, oh, I can finally do this thing now. It's also producers going this is going to sell some tickets. So let's get this in here. And also just sort of, you know, the terrible ways that Hollywood has always abused women too, I would imagine, plays into this. Yes, no doubt about it. And, and you know, through the, through the 60s, while production code's still in place, you've got, you've got foreign art house cinema, which is embracing... Uh, more sometimes luridness, sometimes just um, general um, general nudity, and uh, and and it's uh, and these movies are selling tickets 
in the U.S., whereas whereas Hollywood films aren't able to offer some of those same thrills. Still, All of a sudden, a few years before Yellow, right? The '74 is is it? Uh, I I want to say that is it, that's like seven. Maybe that's '73. So that might be the same same year as Trouble Man. Uh, Tristan is flipping through a reference book and trying, pulling up the information nope. right now as we listen. Failing. Yes. Um, very, 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 very inefficient. Um, <laughs> but no, it's so, all the same. Yeah, for sure. Like, like uh, you said, so, but now, now up. you can have right now you can have that in in Hollywood, and uh, and why would you not want to take advantage of that to get people into your seats into the movie theaters? You, uh, we we are in the NC seventeen era. I, actually, I want to plug the another podcast. Uh, you must remember this which is fantastic, great about classic Hollywood. If you like what we talk about, you'll love that. Katrina, Katrina Longworth is the host, and she's she's fantastic. And she's doing a current season on uh, sex in Hollywood in the 80s and 90s. And so it's primarily focused on the erotic thriller. But her first couple of episodes are actually about the rise of NC-17 and the X-rating and, and all of that, and digs into you know, porno chic, it's, it's all kind of baked into what we're talking about right now. So if you want to learn more, highly recommend, give it a listen. She truly digs deep. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we also should keep in mind that there, there's a bigger gulf at this time in, in cinema. Uh, there's no, um, there, there's no PG 13 right now. Um, so so films are much more. No, films aren't trying to straddle that middle line. They're either embracing the the, the harder rating, or they're they're skewing for a younger audience. Right. Although the interesting, I mean, I'm really cribbing from. You must remember this now, but the, one of the interesting things about the original intent for that hard rating going past R was actually as a um, as a way to be commercial, but to have very adult themes and content. And it's so interesting, like at this time, as it was coming into focus, that actually was proving true. But just 10 years later, it was perceived as the kiss of commercial death to have a, you know, NC-17 X rating. So, uh, so crazy, but it's uh, it, clearly but, it's happening. You know, one of the happened. things she, yeah, I mean, one of the things she points to is, is the rise of home video and your ability to not have to go to a movie theater to sit and, and like run into somebody you know and be like, oh, I'm going to see this X rated movie. Instead, be like, I'm going to go take this and watch it at home where nobody can know <laughs> my secret sins. Great. It's a great podcast overall. It's a great season so far. Highly recommend. Uh, but actually, that's something I thought it was interesting. Going back to Shaft and Trouble Man, something I thought was interesting here, and I think speaks to the seventies, uh, like the the combination of greater sexual freedom in what's being portrayed on screen, and also the remnants of free love era and movement, is that both of these protagonists have a girlfriend, but are also sleeping with other women. And even the implied sleeping around that other detectives and some of the pulpier entries have done, like Bogart has done, like uh, some of the Mike Hammers have done, they've never had like a quote unquote steady, right? And like, even especially within like Bogart's case, there is a certain amount of romanticism to Big Sleep in that 
he winds up with somebody specifically at the end and it is sort of an implied you know he's a tomcat but now he's going to be monogamous with her whereas that's not really part of this at all it's just sort of the vibe no, is these guys engage with that at all on, on have the like slightest their main girl but also they see a bunch of other girls and that's just how life is yeah uh no it's and it it doesn't attempt to comment on it no, uh, yeah. ne- neither film uh, neither film's concerned with that at all uh gosh uh I, I, one thing that we've we've touched on already but um, in in bringing these movies together um both both shaft and t have a lot to prove uh as as characters they're not just another marlowe or another brutish white private investigator there there's a, a definite sense that they have to be a standard bearer for black audiences and uh and, and in both cases uh, it really seems like everyone that's involved in the production uh behind the scenes in front of the camera they they all know it and and damn it they're here to pull it off and um and so we get two characters two larger than life characters that the genre and and audiences really deserve yeah i I think it's interesting you know i think there's an element of almost and maybe this is just because that's all the only kind of movie we get anymore but it feels like there's an element of superhero to it in the way that they relate to the community right that they are they are that bridge between private detective as the extra legal enforcer slash vigilante and where we wind up with the current moment in cinema that we're living through where everybody is in spandex and protecting they're taking the law into their own hands and protecting their people and even more so i think with trouble man with t when he's uh that little opening case that he does doesn't have anything to do with anything else but about the family where the kid falls off because the railing snaps and he goes to the tenement slumlord and who's trying to weasel out of responsibility is like you're gonna pay for the hospital bills you're gonna tell them you're sorry and you're gonna fix up that building and that's it like that's he just shows up and he is the community fixer and so i i think that is part and parcel with this like you're talking about the larger sense of we're trying to create something that speaks to an underserved community and so it's not just the lone wolf setting out to to fix things on his own although to a certain degree more or less they do they are also engaging in that power fantasy but they are also deeply connected to their community and trying to do something about it um you know i was reading some of the commentary about this and it's interesting somebody that some have pointed out that for shaft there's sort of a flip side to that in that the um black revolutionaries are sort of depicted as ineffectual and you know shaft is somebody who can kind of work in and outside of the system but the black revolutionaries can't protect themselves not really helping the community they're you know is is how the film is portraying them and then ultimately they become sort of subsumed to shaft's journey and his his mission and uh, you know yes they're part of this community and, and help him achieve his mission but also like they're you know kind of getting paid for well not getting paid they're, they're paid for the guys that got killed but um so you know i think also the i think the thing to remember right again i'm kind of going off of 
commentary and criticism I've read from people smarter than me, but the, 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 they rightfully point out that like these are still being made within white studio systems. And so there's a very calculated economic motivator. Uh, once you go far enough up the, the, the food chain of who's making decisions, that's justifying a lot of this where it is that like, here's an untapped market. Let's make some money and not so much. We owe them a representation on screen that really speaks, you know, and I think like, what you're talking about in terms of the writer and director and star, I 100% believe people on that level have good intentions and are achieving those intentions. But I think there is also this larger box that they are playing within that's that's also sort of setting boundaries of what can and cannot be shown on on screen in terms of in terms of that black representation. Yeah, no, you're um, you're totally right, and it's hard to it's hard to see exactly where where lines are drawn and and all, but uh, but clearly they're. Um, there, there's a studio hand in in uh, everything here, and in most things that we that we encounter. On a detective level, I'd put Shaft and T up there with 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 most of um, ahead of most of the other detectives we've looked at this entire season. Oh yeah, I mean, I put I put Shaft with Bogarts, Marlowe, and I know you're more of a Spade guy, but vice versa. You know, flip which, whichever Marlowe you whichever Bogart you want to go with. In terms of icon, going back to the the mythology behind Shaft, there's that there's something about Bogart in um, as Spade where he he's not the myth yet. He that is the movie that sets the myth, right? Mm. That's the that's the movie where it's by the time Bogart is is Marlowe in the Big Sleep, the myth is there, and Bogart's playing playing into his own myth, and and Shaft. Shaft wants to be mythic right from the outset, whereas I uh, and and he achieves it. Uh, lots lots of I should note lots of characters, lots of directors and writers and actors want their character to be mythic, and and many of them do not pull it off. No. Um, and Shaft does, uh, so so that's amazing. Uh, whereas whereas Bogart in Maltese Falcon for me is just like that is that is a genre kindling for a genre. That is where things begin, and and it doesn't feel like he's set out to to be um iconic right in that moment he just it turns out that he is hmm. no i think that's uh, that's a fair assessment um but anyway yeah i would agree both both great detectives um you know something else that we i think kind of falls into this talking point is that that i notice is that shaft deploys his private detective badge in a way that we haven't seen other detectives do and you know and i think it is like about respect right i mean like moving through a culture that does not respect him on a like especially outside of um his community it's a way to claim respect for himself by saying like i have been empowered by the state to a certain degree in order to do these things and it's still just a private detective's badge and like other pis have you know have their badges their licenses with them and have shown them but there's some and i felt like there's something about the way that shaft is using his that that felt different in in how it was deployed i think you're right and there's there's definitely more there's more of a, a sense of needing to assert himself here and he's uh, he is an assertive guy. He uh, that is 
that that is part of his entire appeal, and uh, and, and it makes sense that he wields his his private detective power with with the same uh, prowess that he he wields his, um, his his sexual magnetism. Uh, yeah, one last thing I wanted to flag as we're kind of talking about the two is just how both deal with their characters' relationship with the police and how that compares to past noir detectives that we've looked at and because it's always been a somewhat antagonistic relationship or almost always an antagonist somewhat antagonistic relationship within the noir world of of private detectives but here obviously there is a much more heightened charge to it that is because of the fact the leads are black right like um even in shaft where he is friends with the detective and like can joke with him there's outside of that one guy in the forest the rest of the guys it feels like they're they're a little more suspicious than outright in t in, in trouble man with t the the police captain is like i hate you and i'm gonna bring t, you in t is this. t is so is downright sneaky and and the after big's death and uh and him him engaging with the police captain and that that um, back and forth of him knowing him knowing that his story doesn't add up and knowing he can't do anything about it because he's outsmarted him. Um, there, there's there, there's definitely charge there, and, um, and and it gives it some stakes because you um, you're you're not sure you you're not sure how much he can count on the police to that they're, they're not going to have his back if it if it comes down to it. Yeah, and I think it's, it's definitely heightened in Trouble Man, especially. And it feels like that's part of what the movie is after, right? I mean, like from the get-go, when he gets into the car with the um, Chalky and the other guy, you know, he's like, "Let Whitey sit in the back for once," or whatever that line is when he has the the other guy sit in the back. Like it, it's it's setting a thesis statement from the top of like, this is a world and a character who is able to assert dominance um, and does not submit to uh to white figures of authority and i, I think it, it, it does it in like a really fun and, and engaging way agreed these have been uh these have been two films i've when the case of shaft i've been happy to revisit but just to watch them back to back together and to jump in for me this is what this this series is about is expanding our our horizons of what what influences noir has had and where different people different voices are going to take it and um and and i'm so excited to stretch this into the back half of our season um as we begin to wrap it up we have to make time for our recurring segment that would be what's in the box so fred in honor of kiss me deadly What's something that you've watched recently that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Well, this past weekend, I watched Bells Are Ringing, the 1960, 1960 movie starring Judy Holliday and Dean Martin. I have never seen it. It is a delight, largely because of Judy Holliday. She is fantastic i think this is either her last or one of her last performances before she died at the too young age of 44 from throat cancer um but she is just effervescent here 
she is uh, she's a lifelong song and dance performer and she just gets to shine here and i think it's perfect pairing with dean martin's like laid back cool because he's very good at just sort of sharing the spotlight and just sort of like doing his thing and letting her get all the best moments and she gets the best moments this is a um role that she originated on broadway and won the tony for and then it got adapted into a feature and they they brought her along for it even though it was a couple years later and it's really fun overall as a musical i think the songs are some of them have become staples outside of the context of the movie there's one or two that 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 became like dean martin staples there's at least one that became a judy garland staple but and vincent minnelli directed so that's not too surprising but I think as like a musical number, they're kind of a, a mixed bag, but just as a fun comedy and just like a little, like I said, effervescent piece of entertainment, it's it's tough to beat. So bells are ringing. Fun time. Awesome. I'm always, always down for musicals. So, uh, so I'm excited to check that out too. Me, I, uh, I recently caught what was playing here in New Orleans. Um, I, I, uh, I caught uh, Petite Maman, which I oh, I'm very jealous. Which I, which I really, really liked, um, and, and uh, I, I I like Celine um, Sciamma quite a bit. Obviously, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is is wonderful, um, but I loved the simplicity of P- Petite Maman, um, and just getting such tender performances out of children is something that is so damn difficult. Um, I have I have mad appreciation for um, and the and and what she does so well here uh, and it builds to this is really capturing that childhood sense of wonder. I absolutely loved that. Yeah, have you watched her earlier, like Tomboy and Water Lilies and all that? I have not. No. So you should. They're great. I mean, she is. Somebody asked, uh, I was talking with somebody, I was in a conversation with a group of people and it was, uh, you know, who, which director has the best, who's only made five movies, has the best filmography. Um, and I put put up Celine Siama as, as, as my pick. I have not seen Petite Maman yet. I cannot wait because I have loved almost every single one of her other movies. Um, I'm not surprised that she got good performances out of kids. Uh, you should watch Tomboy, which is another film of hers about I don't know, a bunch of preteens that are like eight or 10 or 12 or something like that. And just super naturalistic and felt and deeply emotional. You know, I think her, for me, her weakest entry is Water Lilies and it's still like a pretty good movie. Um, but the she's just been hitting home runs ever since. So I'm I'm very excited to get to watch it. Yeah. And there's, uh, I'm, I'm partly biased because I felt like there was a, a, a sincere um, effort to, to call out to one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Celine and Julie go boating. Um, and, and I, I would be absolutely floored if there weren't intentional parallels between, between the two. Um, but, uh, but any, but all, that's also a movie that uh, doesn't, doesn't, well, there's a child in it, but it, it's not, it's not about childhood wonder, but it is about joy and it's about female friendship. And, uh, and, and, and anyway, Petite Maman uh, taps into those notes really really wonderfully and to have a movie that that conveys genuine joy is um is something that i think we all could use 
um, all the time, but you know, lately I've particularly valued that in movies. Highly recommend it. And now, Fred, I'm think I'm trying to think of what director has the best filmography in five <laughs> movies. So thanks for setting me down that path. I'll be thinking about that all night. Can't wait to hear what your your picks are. Ooh, hmm. I'll come up with it. <sighs> all right. So as we prepare to close out. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll be taking a brief intermission as we prepare the back half of our detective season and move fully into neo-noir. So, we will see you in a few weeks when we queue up two titanic classics of SoCal noir, The Long Goodbye, and Chinatown. Prepare for our deepest dive yet into the underbelly of the Inland Empire. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>